0: Welcome back to the History of South Africa podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 64 and we've rejoined Lieutenant Colonel Richard Collins and Governor Caledon in Cape Town. If you remember last episode, we heard about Collins' military intelligence gathering trip to the eastern frontier. He'd returned with two main ideas about what to do about the Amakosa still living on the Zurfeld. His report of the 6th of August 1809 is another of those key moments in South African history. In response, Caledon's first initiative was to set up a mechanism to regulate the employment of the Koikoi labor force called the Hottentot Proclamation of November 1809. The Caledon Code, as it became known, decreed that work contracts had to be drawn up before a magistrate, thus according to Koikoi some form of legal protection from exploitation. But this was negated almost immediately by the fine print that the Koikoi had to be registered in a fixed place of abode which forbid their movement without a certificate issued by a Landrost. The power system's first proper installation was at hand. This meant the Koikoi had to live and work on farms, which meant they could no longer live the life they'd been used to roaming about on the landscape, which they'd done for thousands of years. However, Kaladin was loath to enforce Collins' second proposal. In the interest of preserving peace in the eastern districts, He said all future contact between colonists and the Amatosa should be prevented by expelling the Amatosa beyond the Fish River. Unlike previous edicts, Collins further suggested a buffer zone to the east of the Fish and towards the Kaiskama River, an area about 50 kilometers wide and stretching from the coast to the Amatola Mountains. Then he went further. As some former VOC and British officials had suggested, he wanted a rigid boundary backed up by powerful fortifications built along the river. Lord Caledon's response was negative. The British were fighting a war of survival against Napoleon in Europe, and here was one of their soldiers suggesting more troops should be sent to the eastern frontier on the tip of Africa. And for what reason? There were virtually no English speakers here to protect. Only the port of Cape Town was strategic. Caledon had another misgiving. He privately believed that the Zulfeld belonged to the Amakosa and the Koikoi, which of course it did, but he was pressurized by the moment if you like. There was a major drought across southern Africa and in the Eastern Cape it had created a situation where the Amat-Koza had drifted further west than usual as they searched for water. These people were moving about in war parties, aggressively begging or raiding along the entire front of the Fish River border region, all the way from Kraf Renet to the seafront. Whether they felt they had a right to do so or not, the effect was to make the Trek-Boers paranoid. By mid-1810, hardly any farms were still occupied east of the Jutenheil Drosti, and Branky's Huchte had been abandoned entirely. With intimidated settlers in flight, it seemed that the Amatrosa had gained control of the Zofeld. Collins believed the Boers were best placed to fight the Amatrosa, both because they were better marksmen and also because they knew the countryside. They also had locally bred horses, which were smaller and better able to cope with the mixed terrain of rocky felt and semi-desert, thick subtropical bush and thorny ravines. And they were expendable. The energetic lieutenant-colonel was also very much a British imperialist because he wanted to bring British teachers out from Europe to teach Boer children on the frontier so that the next generation would be all Englishmen, as he wrote in his report, even as he was hoping to exploit their Boerness. By the end of 1809, Collins had seen more of Southern Africa than virtually any other man or woman of whatever race. He had an idealistic bent like the Batavians. He believed in the blueprint for the development of an entire country. As a Renaissance man, his report was full of coastal services, plans for new harbors, and dams and irrigation networks, canals for the Karoo, regular postal services, an agricultural college, and even the idea of preservation of animals. These had already been exterminated around the Cape, and in his words, the powerful buffalo, the majestic elephants, the wonderful hippopotamus, the herds of beautiful antelopes, had been destroyed, and something should be done to prevent the extinction of any species now remaining. Even as reports began to circulate of increased raiding by the Amatosa, Lord Caledon hesitated to let loose the dogs of war, so to speak. He wrote about how the Amatposa, in his view, had a historic right to the use of the land and was dubious about the Trekpur claims to vast swathes of the zoo field. But the Amatposa were not helping matters. Remember how the decades old hatred between Entlambe and Ingeka had persisted. Both were now encouraging minor chiefs in the frontier zone to increase their cattle rustling and what the colonists called strolling or wandering around. For Ndeka, he thought he could force the British into negotiations, for in it was a purely a matter of principle. The Rarabi ancestral ground lay to the west of the Fish River, as far as he was concerned, although his people had seized it in turn from the Khoi, using a mixture of violence and intermarriage, and they in turn, perhaps a few thousand years before, from the San. When the Amakosa took the land, they committed virtually the same ethnic cleansing methodology deployed by the Trek against the San. Amakosa oral history is full of the sand being referred to as subhuman and even as monkeys. Dehumanizing people is part of a social narrative preparing the subconscious for murder, rape and pillage. This, by the way, is beginning to play out in modern South African politics, with first peoples now demanding parts of this land back, or at least compensation. It's a hot potato for the ruling ANC, which is trying to avoid the discussion right now. Anyone visiting the Union buildings in Pretoria will see the grand statue of Nelson Mandela that overlooks the capital, and right under his gaze our first people protests, where this is spelled out in no uncertain terms. But back to our story. This strolling had developed into a surge by the start of eighteen ten. The Ahmads appeared to be moving about on a broad front, each clan expanding westwards past Prankis Hochte towards Renet to the north, and around and past Algoa Bay at the coast towards modern-day Mossel Bay. The Trekboers had also not helped. Instead of negotiating with the Amakosa as equals or joint owners of the territory, they adopted a fundamentalist attitude based on a Eurocentric understanding of the ownership of property. Jacob Keiler, the Uitenhage Landrost, a man we know well by now, sent a letter to Kaladin that begged for more possible measures to protect the unfortunate colonists. Instead of just driving the Amatosa eastwards, he wanted to make an example of in and Kungwa, the Amakunukwe, and have them hanged. Fortunately, Caledon was not as bloodthirsty, and knew that should the authorities do this, they would have to deal with a full scale war. At the same time, by eighteen ten the frontier had reverted to a pattern of conflict we know so well. Amatza bands were killing Khoi Shepherds and stealing Trikbu herds. Farms were abandoned, Lagers were being formed and commandos were planned. Still, Lord Caledon hesitated. Remember, he was European. His interests were rooted in what Britain needed to do to defeat Napoleon. His Cape Garrison had been reduced from 8,000 to fewer than 6,000. The start of the Peninsula Campaign in Spain in 1808 was the largest, longest and bloodiest period of the entire Napoleonic Wars and Britain was stretched to the limit. For the myopic Kyler sitting in his small shack come Landros building at Udenhag, the Amatosa were the biggest problem, not Napoleon. For his boss Caledon, who was based in Cape Town and receiving news from the world through the fleets, Napoleon was clearly the most threatening to British interests. Caledon said he would send troops to the Zutfeld only when the foreign war in Europe was over. While all of this was going on, the Amakosa had come to a conclusion which was to change this 19th century political algorithm. Tongwa and Inflambe in particular had met smaller chiefdoms and the discussions included the message of survival. They had seen the numbers of Tricboos increasingly heading north and east into their country. The Amakosa believed it was time for their own people to head in the opposite direction. If the settlers thought they could roam the felt into the Amakosa land heading east, why should the not roam the felt heading west? A powerful feeling had developed by now that they had as much right to venture westwards as the trekboers felt they had a right to venture eastwards. The amat logic was hard to contradict. They needed fresh pastures and the drought had hammered their herds. There were many flowing rivers like the Khuruts and others to the south. They also saw a handful of trekboers sitting on thousands of hectares and thought they'd squat on the farms and demand hospitality. Remember the ancient practice of African groups, sharing the spoils of harvests and working together at times of difficulty. These Amatosa were still of the opinion that the settlers would somehow agree to localize their social system. Tungwa established kraals 150 miles west of Algoa Bay. One of the Amandange chiefs went a step further and had his kraal halfway to Cape Town from the Zutfeld on the extreme western edge of the Karoo. Sitting at his graaf, René Drosti was Anders Stockenström, the old Dutch man we met last podcast. He would warned the governor about these emigrations, saying that at some point the troops of the blacks will proceed to the Cape if they are not already arrived. The Amatoza laughed at Stockenström's fears. They had no interest in heading that far south. The climate was totally different to their summer rainfall lifestyle, and they wouldn't be able to sustain their first Fruit ceremony is so vital to their societal function. Their entire way of life would have to reverse and their all-important crops would fail. Still, they were clearly testing the boundaries geographically as well as politically. But they also made the point during discussions with Anders Stockenström, for example, that no one could stop them if they felt like strolling all the way to Cape Town. They point to their ears, meaning to say they are deaf to any representation of that nature. Others again have told us they intend going to the Cape to know from the governor himself whether any of his orders prohibited them from strolling about as friends. To move about on the landscape is one of the fundamental freedoms of human beings. The colonists saw this as an insouciance and a demonstration of what they called amatosa arrogance. They hold a great opinion of themselves and think that the friendliness and moderation shown themselves are signs of fear, said the Graf Landros. The colonials felt that the only language the Amitosa understood was tough and firm discipline and were determined to meter this out. The Drekboers could not differentiate between friendliness and ingratiation because they had not integrated their culture with that of the preceding culture. Of course, It is a powerful people that remains easy-going even in the face of confrontation. It's only the weak and the paranoid who overplay their hand of power. And the Amakosa knew that. So did colonial authorities, analysing this moment. The colonists are credulous and timorous, wrote Stockenström in a report to Caledon, and have not as yet recovered from the dread produced by former events, and thus they dare not maintain their ground in that rugged country through the long nights. If they joined the local chieftain and paid a few head of cattle a year and married his daughters, they'd be safe. But of course, they couldn't, because they were already alienated from Africa, although integrated on its landscape, determined to function as a kind of white social bubble on the geography. How perfectly imperfect. The first trekboers in this region were actually marrying Khoi and trying to integrate themselves, but that was half a century ago. Those early frontiers men knew that they should show respect to local leadership, but by now they were hell-bent on destroying that very same social fabric in order to secure their farms and future expansion. Throughout 1810 and into 1811, concern rose as the colonists abandoned farms and droves, leaving the Zulfield and all areas east of Graf Reinet. Amatosa arrived at these farms after the trek was departed and torched the buildings further aggravating the situation. The timorous actions of the colonists emboldened the young raiders. It became almost a rite of passage to boast around the Kral fire about destroying the homes of the colonists who ran away long before they arrived. It became a self-fulfilling prophecy. By 1811, one of Lord Caledon's military officials reported that the country is on every side overrun by the causer and there never was a period when such numerous parties of them were known to have advanced so far in every direction before. The colonists and the English officials and landros were calling for immediate action. While Caledon had said in May 1810 that formidable force may have to be used, it was more than a year later in June 1811 when he eventually responded to Stockenström the Elder and Kyler's complaints. Caledon finally authorized the formation of a commander, but he issued this stern warning. On no account whatsoever, let the supposition of danger be ever so strong, shall a shot be fired or any violence used, unless the blacks shall have actually commenced an attack. My purpose is to prevent, not to occasion, a state of war. Well, that's all good for Lord Caledon hanging around the beautiful and safe environment in Cape Town. It was hardly likely that a commander of Trek and British officials armed to the teeth appearing in the vicinity of Tungwa on Klambe to be seen as anything but a threat. There was no way around this. Historically, we should also accept the inevitability of what was happening. It was intractable. Still, Caledon withheld his instruction at the last moment. You see, he'd already resigned as governor and London was sending a replacement. Caledon didn't want his legacy to be the start of a new war against Amatosa as he departed the scene. Ironically, Caledon's reason for leaving was a face-to-face shouting match with his military chief of staff, Major General George Henry Gray, about who was actually in charge of the troops in the Cape. So, to get around this problem from now on, the British appointed military governors to the Cape, who doubled up as commanders-in-chief of the armed forces. Lord Caledon bid adieu to Cape Town in july eighteen eleven, and Major General Grey was appointed as acting governor until Caledon's successor arrived. Kyler in Uutenhag and Stockenstrom and Graf Rainet immediately ratcheted up the pressure on Major General Grey. They had worked out a complete political strategy linked to the violence they envisaged, and Schlambe would be seized as a hostage at the start of the war. He'd only be released when all Amaklaza had been driven from the Zufeld. Now, as you and I know, seizing Nklambe would in no way convince most of the amat living in the zoo to leave. Many still secretly believed Nkwinka was the real chief of the Rarabi, so taking Nklambe captive would achieve nothing. Then there was Tungwa, who had an on-off relationship with Nklambe and would probably use any hostage-taking as an excuse to create conflict in the zoo just to have him hanged. It also shows the ongoing lack of knowledge deployed by the English Landrost, including the Dutch-speaking under Stockensturm. He had spent decades in Africa, but still did not understand its people. He was going to pay dearly and with his life for his inability to read the local people accurately. Initial meetings up to now between the Columbia and the British military have been cool, but not necessarily combative. Captain Everett, A British officer had been sent to talk to Nklambi in 1810 and asked when the Amatosa would finally leave the Zufeld and cross the Great Fish River. Accompanying Evert on this trip was the younger Stockenström, Andris, who said that Nklambi had received them with civility. Back in Nklambi's great place on the coast south of the Kaiskama River, the Amatosa were labouring under a misconception. Nklambi had negotiated his place in the sun with the Boers, and his belief had been corroborated by the Boers themselves. It was common talk at the time amongst the colonists that Inflambi had bought the Zulfveld from the Dutch, although from whom exactly was a matter of debate. Inflambi claimed he'd paid 800 oxen for the area, something that André Stockensturm told Evert, and the British and many people at this point in time believed his claim was valid. And now, at this crucial juncture, a new governor arrived. Lieutenant General Sir John Craddock with one D disembarked in Cape Town on the 5th of September, 1811. It took him only three weeks to declare war on the Amatraosa. He was a man of action, a military man, and he was being advised by fellow soldiers. A full military invasion of the Zufeld was ordered to drive all Amatraosa out of the area across the Great Fish River, which thereafter would become the long desired closed boundary between the colony and the Amatraosa. What was really a disaster at the time for Southern Africa was Lieutenant General Craddock was seething with resentment and anger. he joined the army at 15, at the age of 23, he was a major. He'd been fighting across the globe, the West Indies, Ireland, Egypt, India and Portugal. It was this final stage that drove him over the edge. Let me explain. He'd been appointed commander of all British forces in the peninsula in Europe, ready to take on... The most honorable of positions against that all-consuming foe of the english napoleon bonaparte that was in 1808 but he was inauspiciously replaced by wellington and was then installed as governor of gibraltar it was a small hop from that position to governor of the cape so instead of the humane and conscientiously prudent earl of caledon The Cape was joined by an active military man smarting from the denial of honours and glory of a campaign in Europe. A campaign in South Africa would go some way to soothing his frustrated soul and he was not going to be hesitant in deploying extreme violence and ethnic cleansing should it be required. As you're going to hear next episode, this moment in South African history has a direct bearing on the present. It involves muskets, horses and a military solution. And the main weapon deployed by Gray was the man we've met already, Lieutenant Colonel John Graham. And he was to introduce what became known as a proper degree of terror. Please rate the podcast on iTunes if you have the time. It helps make the series more visible. If you have any comments or want to contact me, you can use the website desmondlatham.blog or desmondlatham.com. I'm also on Twitter. You can direct message me there, at deslatham. Until next au revoir